If you think about it, in any given year, we've got six billion, five, six billion dollars worth of construction projects going on. You, you, you need to be able to trust that your regional leadership, your local leadership knows what they're doing and that if there's a problem, they're going to let you know and they're going to let you know quickly. So really taking that step back and trying to be the strategic leader who gives them the resources and the top cover, everything they need to get the job done, gives them the direction that they're supposed to go in, but also but doesn't come in and want to you know, change the font size or the color on whatever product it is that they're, that they're working on. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that tactic comes from Emily Murphy, the administrator of the General Services Administration, about how her leadership team navigated the turbulent COVID pandemic. And in this episode, Emily shares how she went from a junior staffer to being sworn in by Mick Mulvaney, what she's learned about leadership during this pandemic, and how Americans stepped up big for their country. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the real Emily Murphy. Enjoy. Sounds like a plan. All right, let's do it. Let's have a good time. Here we go in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone. To this episode of the Relayers Podcast, I'm your host Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Emily Murphy, the administrator for the U.S. General Services Administration. Emily, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's see here, Emily, the General Services Administration. For those who don't know, listening to this on audio, you oversee 11,000 employees. 369 million square feet of property and 68 billion dollars in annual contracts. That is a significant responsibility, Emily. So the first question I have for you today is what attracted you specifically about the GSA? So GSA is a place where you can actually save money for taxpayers. You help agencies do their job better because if you help them, if you can take care of their space, make sure they're in the right space, make sure they have the right IT contract, make sure their credit cards work or their fleet vehicles work. All of that is stuff that they then don't have to spend their time, their energy, and hopefully as many of their funds on actually doing. GSA also, more than almost any other federal agency, operates as a business. Uh, the you know, we we take in rent to pay for our federal buildings from our from our customers. We're not a mandatory source on our procurements, uh, so we take we collect a fee, and that's what pays for the salaries of the employees who work on that. Well, only about one and a half percent of our budget is a direct appropriation to GSA. Wow. Incredible. Now, how has it always been like this? See, I was in the, the mind that the yeah. government loves to take my money and then just spend it at will. Has it always been a cost-saving program? Uh, well, actually, so Harry Truman created GSA back in 1949, and he did it with the idea that there surely he had actually uh, President Hoover had been the president before, uh, you know, about 20 years earlier, led a commission to look at how could we save money. How could we be more efficient? How could we avoid, they use the phrase, senseless duplication? Mm. Um, and so that was the idea behind GSA. And when they created GSA, it was then, it actually included things like the archives as well. So at the time GSA was originally created, there were about 40,000 employees. 
It was in the the early uh, 90s, though, that GSA went to being more fee-for-service organization. So instead of being, you know, the acquisitions being mandatory contracts that everyone had to buy their pencils from GSA, it became GSA is going to put together contract vehicles or, um, you know, IT solutions or things along those lines and try and be innovators and leaders in the space. And if we've got the right solution for you that puts you in touch with the right group in the public sector and the private sector, you use us and we get a fee and that pays, uh, pays our salaries. So I'm just trying to paint the picture here. How many agencies like do you oversee that you have to manage and take care of? So we provide is it office space for about 300, 369 million square feet of office space. So with the exception of the Department of Defense, we probably manage some space for every federal agency out there. Actually, we do have some for DOD. We don't manage the Pentagon. Um, you know, we, but we've got almost every, you know, every courthouse you're looking at is a GSA building. On the acquisition side, we are used by over a hundred different agencies. State and local governments can use our contract vehicles in certain circumstances, like by IT. Um, and our, you know, so we were serving a vast number of entities. And that's part of our value is that if you're a small agency, you don't want to spend a lot of your salary money on having your own procurement person or they're, they're not, you're not going to be able to have enough people or experts in an area. Um, if you're a large agency, you know, if you can let us do what the general, uh, within the general scope of what all agencies need, you can then use your resources towards what's very specific for you as an agency. So, for example, DOD is our largest acquisition customer. We don't do weapon systems. They do the weapon systems. We work with them, though, on things like IT modernization mm. and, you know, and back office systems. Um, so it, it's a good balance and it helps uh, distribute that, that workload across agencies. So you mentioned IT and now you, I think you have a background in tech. Could you maybe unpack for our audience like some of the moments, career moments, uh, career uh, sittings that led up to uh, the GSA? So I never thought I'd have this job. I am really fortunate to be in it. I moved to DC 25 years ago. The thought that I'd be here for a year. And I did, I came out here to work for my hometown congressman. And I was the junior staffer working for him. Junior staffer gets assigned the issue no one else wants. In that case, it was a government contracting policy. No one wanted to work on that. And I still will guarantee if you're at a cocktail party and you want to get out of a conversation, say you do federal procurement policy. No one wants to talk to you. Um, but did worked on that for a few years, went to law school, started practicing as a government contracts lawyer, got recruited into the Bush administration to work for the Small Business Administration, and then GSA, working on contracting programs at those agencies, left um, to go work for a startup satellite telecommunications company and was with them for five years. Uh, then got hired back on the Hill to go work on acquisition policy related to small businesses and then ultimately uh, to defense acquisition policy before I was uh, recruited back to GSA at the beginning of the Trump administration. And that was confirmed uh, by the Senate in December 17. So when you get sworn in by the president, like what was that moment like for you? So I actually had... Um, 
Mick Mulvaney came over and did my swearing in. Oh, okay. And at the time he was the OMB director uh, because I'd known him when he was a freshman member of Congress and I'd written his first bill. And so I, he came over because um, he, he knew me. Um, it it was a little intimidating. There was that moment I after the, the day after the vote when I actually knew I had the job, I woke up and had that moment of, oh, wow, now I actually have to do this. Because uh, <laughs> you spend so much energy getting the job that you're like, okay, you know, how now I've got to deliver the results. So I want to kind of draw the comparison, maybe the parallel to that same emotion and that same uh, feeling for when COVID-19 hits. Um, here you are, you're preparing, you've, you've got the, the lead role now as the administrator for the GSA. Um, you're in charge of 11,000 employees, all of this property, all of these contracts, and then, oops, a pandemic uh, comes in and, and uh, we are told to stay inside and, and uh, work remotely. What went through your head? How far in advance were are you really prepared for this and can you prepare for something like the, like a pandemic? So we had a pandemic plan oh, You did, okay. and we sat down with it uh, in, in January. We looked at it and we said, okay, what the plan had in it doesn't really reflect what we're seeing right now. So we were trying to go through and adjust it to figure out what do we need to be doing? We, you know, we're very fortunate. We can talk to HHS. We can talk to Department of Homeland Security. We can talk to, you know, the, we could get our hands on the experts and ask them and get guidance from them. Uh, the, what we really spent a lot of time doing that was making sure our technology was ready so that you know, we had the supply chain in, in place so that we could get the masks and the gloves and the hand sanitizer and all those things that we thought we were going to need. But did we have, you know, if we needed to go remote, were we going to be able to do it? So a week before we did that, we actually had a test day and we sent everyone in the agency home and said telework for the day. And my CIO actually came up with a series of exercises that we were going to conduct through the day. So we would test all different parts of our system. So, you know, how much could our VPN handle? What, you know, what could we rebalance? What if they're using these apps? And we found we could, we could do it. So we were actually, I think the first major agency to go to uh, mandatory telework. We, I announced that on March 16th and we're still at a mandatory telework status. Um, because we've decided we're, you know, frankly, we're, we're prioritizing bringing our customer agencies back before we bring ourselves back because the IT's worked so well. That's incredible. Now, what are some of the takeaways from the last few months? I mean, you're, you're working remotely. Has it been successful? Have you uh, been able to uh, find uh, new opportunities throughout these couple months? So the, there's the good and there's the bad. Um, and the the good parts, I'd say the, I, you know, the IT works amazingly well. Uh, my leadership team, I found we actually get to spend more time talking to each other and talking about issues mm. than we ever did when we were all in the office running from meeting to meeting and traveling from city to city. Mm. Uh, so it, it, we're having, I think, much deeper, more meaningful conversations, and the technology has really enabled that to happen. We've also been able to take a look at things along the lines of, um, you know, how do we want to be intentional about telework? So GSA already had about 80% of its employees had telework agreements, which meant they telework once or twice a week. Um, 
And when I went back and looked at the history of it, it was originally for environmental reasons and then it was for cost-saving reasons. Well, we're now at 97% of our employees are teleworking every day. So how this sort of gives us an opportunity to look at what do we think the optimal state of telework is in the agency. So there've been some great opportunities on that side. There've been some things though, where one of the things GSA sells and makes a fee on is airline ticket sales for the government. No one's buying those. Um, we also run the government credit card program. And so people aren't traveling or you, and, and so we're not getting the fee on the, those, those sales either or the government fleet program. We usually charge per mile driven. Well, people aren't driving, so we're not, so we've had some revenue challenges as well. We're able to offset them uh, with some of the other work we're doing and we're gonna, be, we're gonna be fine as an organization, but it has posed some challenges. And then personally, I'm single. I've been in my condo with my two dogs now pretty much for four months. And that, they're not the best conversationalists. <laughs> They're not? What are their names? Uh, Maggie and Poppy. Uh, so they are they, they are um, energetic and thrilled to have me home. But I, I've been warned that if they start talking back, that that's when I should sort of send out a flag for help. See, that's the part I like about dogs is they can't talk back to you. No, it is. It, it, they are pure love. You, it, it, they, you may see them running here at some point in time. Emily, just to stay on this topic, I had this conversation with uh, Jim Estel, the CEO of Danby Appliances. I actually got a Danby fridge right here. I use it all the time. It's a great fridge. Uh-huh. And he was saying, you know, I thought of this as a way to reshift my thinking about how to use my most valuable assets, which are my employees. I'm, I'm going to start to transition them to make some ventilators. I'm going to make, have them make some PPE products. You know, I'm going to have them, um, you know, uh, go remotely and, and work as an entirely new company. That's how I'm thinking right now. What are, have there been any similarities to that statement for you with how you can kind of restructure, reorganize? your employees and and what have some of those been so there's some so for example we were previously working on a contract with to uh, make commercial you know e-commerce platforms available to the government and we put that on pause we're we're we, it's off pause we took the contracting officer who was running that we put him in charge of emergency supply sourcing and you know, and really trying to um, drill down on that because I think over 50% of the transactions that have been made to support COVID-19 went through GSA, but they're only about a half percent of the dollars that have been spent by the federal government because we're doing a lot of those small transactions, which become very time consuming. Um, and so we, we have redeployed our, 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 some of our really good contracting officers to do that work because it's just essential. We need to make sure that we're there if VA or um, Social Security or other agencies, uh, the Small Business Administration needed laptops so we could help them get the laptops they needed to run the PPP program. Um, so just trying to work through those those types of things. It's also, though, given us the freedom to, take, to look at our customers in a different way. Uh, first, it, it's gotten the federal acquisition service side that does the 68 billion in acquisition and the public building service it's given me the opportunity to have them work more closely on a solution and as an example uh, screening buildings 
you know, the public building service has the, the responsibility for the building and they can work on what the requirements for that are, but they don't really have the ability to go out and award the contracts for screeners at the doors of federal buildings. Federal acquisition service though can put that contract in place. Uh, buildings may want to modify how they use their furniture or if they're putting plexiglass dividers in. Um, and PBS can help us figure out how, you know, how that needs to be done. The federal acquisition service can figure out, you know, what sources do we have on contracts? How do we reach them? How do we put them together into a solution that we can easily deploy? So we, we actually started doing for our top 24 customers dashboard where we looked at how they interact with both parts of the agency to see where we could find those overlaps and do a better job. And we're at, I'm starting now to sit down with those leaders go through those dashboards with them and say, what are we missing? You know, where, where do you think we should be focusing that we're not focusing? When you sit down with all of these leaders, um, mm-hmm. when at the, when they say, let's say an initial meeting with us, maybe there was some uncertainty. I'm sure a lot of people had different perspectives and points of view. Mm-hmm. What came to be like the common consensus from all of these leaders? Uh, so there, you know, there are no two agencies that are really alike. They both, but it really did become clear that they don't think of, you know, they don't think of GSA as being a federal acquisition service and a public building service. They think of us as GSA. And so they actually really appreciate what we're doing to try and make those links for them. Uh, I sort of give the example of GSA when I first got there, it's sort of like someone gave you a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and said, here, everything you need is in this box. Have fun. Uh, yeah. Uh, so we're trying to do a better job of putting the jigsaw puzzle together before we give it to them. So that at least that they're, you know, uh, want to give them a little bit of room so they can fill in the corners or parts of it themselves with what their priorities are. For example, department of commerce, one of their priorities was getting the census back up and running. And so you know, that's where they needed us to put resources to support them. Uh, and that's not going to be common across other agencies. But so it, making sure that we had enough though together that when, when they gave us, you know, here's where we need a spotlight to go right now, we could then have the resources that could, could dive in and, and do what they needed. And for you personally, uh, your leadership experience, what have you t- been able to take away um, from you know this big responsibility that came, you know, it seems like you were somewhat prepared for this uh, back in January, but what has, um, have been a few things that you've learned uh, along this journey so far in 2020? So the first thing I learned is the very first week we were teleworking and that we were really dealing with, with COVID. Um, I made mistakes uh, in how I was leading. Um, I was probably micromanaging too much because it was easy to put my fingers into everything. And at the same time, it was, you know, because our technology is set up in such a way, we use the the G Suite platform. Any employee in the agency could G chat me or use Hangouts to reach me at any point in time. And I felt the need to respond at any point in time. Um, and so after about a week, my deputy, my chief of staff, we all sat down and said, we've got to put some parameters around this. We've got to force it, the decisions back to where they belong um, at the regional level where they have a better understanding of what's happening on the ground there. Uh, and as, as we put together our framework for what it would look like to return to our facilities, we really tried to make it as 
location specific as possible so that local leadership is getting a you know a large amount of the say and what the uh, what the outcomes are going to be and how we're going to structure things because they've got a better sense than I do of whether or not local schools or childcare are open or public transportation's working what the scenario looks like um so that that was for me that one, first week of, of learning that I had to let go was sort of, was one of the challenges that I I really found in in coming to this problem. Uh, that said, the the way we've now been running our you know we do daily pandemic meetings and are looking at our outward and inward response. As an agency, I think we've also had the chance to figure out that we that this does create a lot of opportunity to think about, you know, intentionally about where we want to be in the future and how we're going, you know, we've virtually onboarded, I think about 300 employees since COVID-19 started. So it's made us think differently about space and how we want to use space in the future and how we want to make space available to our customers in the future. And what are, what are those plans? Uh, we haven't finalized them yet because we want to do. We're we're really trying to dive in and do it with some, you know, in intentionality um, and some focus, on making sure we understand. But uh, things we're noticing are, you know, we can do things more remotely than we thought we could. So maybe we can have our leadership more dispersed around the organization. Maybe we don't need to have as much in DC or in a regional headquarters city. Maybe there's more flexibility. Uh, which might then let us recruit talent from other parts of the country as well, uh, or give people more flexibility in their careers to to telework more often, or to um, to move and not have to you know and continue to work, uh, work on the projects they've been working on. Uh, so it's it's given us a chance to take a step back and use you know the as we go through the three phases of returning, figure out what we really want phase three to be. You know, what is our optimal organizational structure going to look like? And how does that change how GSA can you know, be productive in the next 10 years? Emily, you mentioned uh, that in 1949, it used to be very standardized. You know, people get the same pencils, the same equipment. Uh, everything would look, uh, you know, pretty plain. And then now with the rise of technology, it's a little bit more decentralized, uh, a little bit more room for um, uh, people's own decisions uh, in their own, like you said, local leadership. Um, where do you see it now, the GSA evolving to uh, post a pandemic? So I, I think that there's going to be an additional demand for IT support. We've been really active uh, in actually working with AI with the Department of Defense. So we're supporting, the, we've got a center of excellence that's working with their joint artificial intelligence center there. Uh, so how we use technology going forward, GSA has you know, been a, already been a leader in RPA from the government. I see us continuing to invest in technology and make those, but more than just the investment inside of GSA itself, but trying to help craft those solutions and communities of practice so that we can export them to other agencies. We're seeing that happen. I think we're now at nine different agencies where we have centers of excellence operating, uh, where we're helping them with tech modernization. And one area where I really think that we'll at least I hope we're going to be able to focus on is interoperability. Um, it's really hard right now across the government to 
share documents with each other or have a video call because we all have different standards and we and what we can put on our system. So this will give us sort of creates opportunities for us to start thinking about what are the core principles of a shared service that we need and when do we need to be different. Um, so if you think of GSA as being a shared service provider, which is really what we are at the, you know, our heart and soul, um, how can we do a better job in, in being that shared service provider and providing interoperability across agencies? that we can communicate better in, in these types of situations. And for folks listening to this on, on audio and maybe even watching this, interoperability, uh, what that means to me, now maybe I'll give an example, is uh, if I have healthcare records and I've gone to many different healthcare providers over the past, mm-hmm. let's say, 20 years, uh, and they're all operating on different databases, different silos, what this interoperability does is it can provide all of my health records, uh, notes, doctor's notes from these different providers, all on the one platform so then I can make my best educated decision as a doctor to see, okay, Kevin has a, a, a history of good health uh, and that uh, you know he should not be prescribed this uh, medicine because um, he is allergic to this or whatever from this doctor's notes. You know, it, it, There's a, just a, a short example of what interoperability can do for a large organization and for that member itself. Now, the thing that I'm interested about, Emily, is uh, 11,000 members. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty, you know, fairly small organization. Uh, many of the companies we interview are, some are large, some are medium, but I'd say 99, I think it's like 99% of businesses in America are small businesses. And the leadership mm-hmm. responsibilities change as companies grow. When you are overseeing 11,000 employees, um, what is the mindset of your leader and how uh, do you get people to come to work every day and feel inspired? So GSA, it's its mission. Federal employees are very mission driven. Uh, They like to know that they're making a difference. They, you know, it's, I've been incredibly inspired by the thank you notes we've gotten from other agency leaders where they will refer to our employees as heroes. Um, They did they did an amazing job getting the uh, the comfort and the mercy, the the naval ships outfitted and ready to go, um, or the work that they've. You know, we've bought, I think, enough pairs of gloves now to put a pair on everyone in Pennsylvania and Arkansas. Um, it's the GSA is just, and COVID nineteen gave so sort of let everyone coalesce around that mission again. Um, but even the rest of the time. The people who are in the government and especially at GSA are really focused on how are they delivering value. They want to please their customer. And in this case, their customer is one of the you know, the other federal agencies. But ultimately, you know, the customer is the taxpayer mm-hmm. and the American public. Can we do a better job for them? Uh, an innovative agency also. And so they, they always like to come up with new creative solutions. What are some of the challenges with managing so many different people with um, uh, trying to maybe not please everybody, but that's an impossible task to do. Um, What are some of the challenges with stepping into a role like this that um, uh, obtains and contains so many responsibilities? Uh, Realizing that you're not going to know everything that's, that's happening and, and, it makes your leadership team so important. 
Because there's just, there's absolutely no way you can manage every project the agency is doing. You think about it, in any given year, we've got six billion, five, six billion dollars worth of construction projects going on. You, you, you need to be able to trust that your regional leadership, your local leadership knows what they're doing and that if there's a problem, they're going to let you know and they're going to let you know quickly. Uh, so really taking that step back and trying to be the strategic leader who gives them the resources and the top cover um, and the tools, you know, everything they need to get the job done gives them the direction that they're supposed to go in, but also, but doesn't come in and want to, you know, change the font size or the color on whatever product it is that they're, that they're working on. Uh, and, and so it's that tension there. And you're right. You're never going to please everyone. We all, you know, it is a job where you've got um, four different congressional committees overseeing, uh, actually one, two, six different congressional committees overseeing us at any given time as well. Um, so you making sure that we're always doing things that are in the most compliant, you know, ethical way possible is also, you know, just, again, it's one of the challenges when you can't see into, you know, you can't look in every corner yourself. Sure. And just realizing that is, is pretty special. Now, um, what advice would you give to somebody that's about to step into a leadership role that's maybe been working for the organization for a while, it's just got this promotion and is facing some turbulence right now in this COVID uh, pandemic? Um, let's spend a lot of time listening because I, I'll say I've done 16 town halls across GSA with, with different subgroups and then one uh, agency-wide. Because if I hadn't done those, I wouldn't have had the same insight into what my employees needed right now and what they're capable of right now. Mm. Um, so spending that time listening to them, it, it would be one of my first pieces of advice some of the best and most creative solutions have come out of those conversations as well uh, because they will come up with an idea of, Hey, we've been able to pull in. We found that we have 11 different um, A&E firms under, you know, under contract who could help us redesign the space or we, we, we figured out a different way to deal with the supply chain or, or telling us that they needed a waiver of the trade agreements act, which is a technical thing. So that, we could expand our sources of supply for a period of time. So, you know, knowing, hearing from them what they needed and then trying to get them those tools. That mm. would be my first, yeah. If you're stepping into a leadership role right now, that's the most important thing to be doing. That's good advice. Yeah. Listen, definitely. Um, now, I'm curious as well because COVID caused a lot of people to stay indoors. It changed a mm -hmm. lot of habits. Um, a lot of people had a lot more time to maybe even self-reflect. Um, and like you said, you know, be at home, speak with your dogs, you know, have have a, some some home time by yourself. What are some things, uh, some inputs that you do to uh, make sure that you know you are performing at your best abilities? I had this great idea when I first started teleworking that I was going to have this, all this extra free time. And I went and I ordered some watercolors and some paper and thought I can sit out on my balcony and paint and it'll be relaxing. That has happened exactly once. <laughs> so <laughs> that didn't happen. Uh, but I've gotten more disciplined about at the end of the day, stepping away from the computer, taking my dogs out for a really long walk, 
um, you know, just trying to wear them and myself out a little bit before I come back and then refocus on what needs to happen. Uh, because if I don't do that, I could spend all day in this room and that uh, you, you begin to lack a certain amount of clarity when you're doing that. Um, it's good. It's good to get out and get a change of perspective. Absolutely. Uh, now you said in January, this was a time when you could kind of see what was happening, maybe elsewhere around the world. Um, had had you taken anything away? Uh, have you gained an ex- perspective from other countries? What were those countries, and then what were some of those things that um, you identified as uh, as I guess I don't know eye opening or something that you really need to focus on? So we were working really closely with the Department of Health and Human Services at that point okay. and trying to predict what it is we were going to need and what our requirements were going to be. Um, and, you know, it, we were watching what was happening overseas very closely. We were obviously watching the decisions that the White House was making about travel. We were trying to figure out we had a um, we had a conference scheduled for 6000 individuals in Atlanta in April. Uh, that we're supposed to be hosting. We're trying to figure out what to do with that. Did we cancel it? When did we, you know, when should we cancel it? Um, should we be letting our employees travel? You know, at what point in time should we should we be limiting it? When should we say it's only mission essential travel? So there were all sorts of uh, things we were trying to make decisions on with imperfect knowledge. And you know, the the more the you know the better the data got the better we could do it at making our decisions. Um, and, you know, at th- this point, I know that, you know, our, our decision to return to the workforce, to the workplace is, you know, I, I, everyone is first is opening back up and saying we never closed. We've been working around the clock this entire time, but th- that's going to be a very data driven process also. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, it, people got emotional about it because it, it's, you know, maybe not so much in January, but in February when, when you, know, you started seeing cases happening, uh, when we had our first case at GSA, um, you know, or, or a potential case, and that moment of our, what are we supposed to do now? And I think everyone has encountered that at some point in time. And just knowing that we had the right team in place to figure out the answers quickly has been a great comfort. It's good to hear. Now, Emily, uh, you also said, you know, we both agreed it's very difficult to please everybody. Um, and for me, like a lot of the organizations and organizations that I've worked in, uh, it, it starts at the top. Uh, have you uh, shared a, a sense of support or how, how would you say um, President Trump has um, had an impact on your organization? Uh, so I'll say that the, they've given us an enormous amount of freedom and support to, you know, with, with the work we've done on the federal real estate side, on the technology modernization side, the administration has been our biggest champion. So, and going, um, they have actually spearheaded the centers of excellence, the movement I was talking about. Um, so we've, we've gotten incredible support from them, but we've also gotten an incredible amount of freedom to, you know, it make the decisions that we needed to make as you know on an individual basis. We're eleven thousand people, but we're supporting, you know, over a million tenants in our buildings. Um, so, you know, trusting that we would work 
appropriately with those tenant agencies and that we weren't going to abandon anyone or leave anyone uh, without the, the resources they needed. Uh, so it's been a, it's actually been a really, I, I hate to say that COVID has been a positive experience, but it hasn't been. It's been a tragedy. Um, and, but it's been really great to see how well the team came together uh, and how well they managed in the crisis. It's great to hear. And that's going to transition to my next question is, uh, you know, you've been doing all of this work for all of these people. How have the American people, the suppliers, the the customers, the stakeholders, how have they impacted you? Oh, they've also stepped up. We've had, you know, the companies that have pivoted and said, hey, we previously did, you know, um, we were a brewer, but now we're going to do hand sanitizer because we know you need it. Or, you know, so we've, we've had a number of companies that have really sort of come in. We've actually been actively soliciting companies that want to pivot to the federal space because we need a more diverse industrial base. Uh, we've got 14,000 companies that we have as our regular sort of base of suppliers. And we're always trying to add to that, though, because... You know, competition drives lower, drives innovation and better pricing. But we also realize that you know, not every company wants to do business with the federal government because we we're bureaucratic. Um, so we've been trying to figure out ways to make ourselves during this period easier to deal with. Mm. So uh, uh, one example, we went in at the very beginning of this when we were going looking at telework for ourselves, even before we went to mandatory telework. We went in, we modified the majority of our contracts to allow our contractors to telework and to perform the work remotely. Um, we went in and we modified our cleaning contract to bring them up to the CDC standards. Uh, but we also did things like we changed our payment policy so that we said, if you're a small business or you have a small or a subcontracting, you know, small subcontractor, we'll pay you within 15 days of receipt of a proper invoice. So we'll speed up payment to get money to you. Um, so we're trying to find ways that we can be easier to deal with. Emily, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. I'm glad that our country and the GSA is in good hands. Um, with all of these things in mind, we've talked about listening today, uh, having the humbleness, uh, to decentralize and let others do their own jobs with all of this in mind today. Uh, the last question I have for you, Emily, is what is your definition of a real leader? So I think if you'd asked me this before COVID, I would have said that it's the person who's willing to make the decisions and have the hard conversations. And I still think that's part of what a real leader is. But the last few months, what I've been prioritizing the most and what I think makes someone a leader is, are you taking care of your employees? Are you giving them what they need? And are you giving them the top cover to do their jobs? Um, so I think that that's what, you know, th- that's also part of what a leader is. Doesn't mean that the, having the hard conversations isn't still part of that. Um, and it definitely, you know, it's, it's perhaps even more necessary now, but it also means that listening part and making sure you're taking care of your people. 
beautifully put, Emily. Uh, as employees, are your greatest asset, and it's it's yeah. it's great to hear that from uh, not only yourself but the many business owners that have come on this show uh, that are trying to put the humanity back in the as into the business and understanding that um, they're not just a, a number on the balance sheet. So, Emily, just want to appreciate. Appreciate your time coming on the Realtors Podcast today. We're excited to have you and your organization on. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show for Emily Murphy. I'm Kevin Edwards asking to go out there, take care of your employees, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Emily. And thank you, lucky listeners, for tuning in today on this episode of the Realtors Podcast with Emily Murphy. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you haven't yet subscribed and you want to continue to inspire the future and inspire real leadership, please, please, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to this on. Now, also, if you want to get better leadership tips, uh, I, we have a magazine. And I don't know if you knew that, but we have a really, really nice magazine. That's our business. And I'll tell you what, I what I like to do is I like in the mornings, kind of flip to the magazine, I'll find an article or two, and it'll just give me a kind of fresh perspective for the day. It's nice. It's really cool to see how many real leaders are out there in this world and what they do on a daily basis to make a difference. So if you want that magazine, you can get it for 25% off. All you got to do is go online to real-leaders.com slash subscribe and enter in coupon code PODCAST25. Now, what that's going to do is give you 25% off a year subscription. So essentially, if we have four magazines, you are going to get one of those magazines for free. It's a great deal. It's the best deal we have out there right now. So I encourage you, lucky listeners, real-leaders.com slash subscribe, enter in coupon code PODCAST25, and become a real leader. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast, and stay posted for the next episode.